0: There is no consensus about how the future of Sudan should look like. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And I think we should appreciate that many people have many different ideas about this future, but they all agree that the future cannot be like the past.
1: Hello and welcome to the Mediator Studio. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. I'm here at the Oslo Forum, where mediators and other conflict actors from around the world have come to talk. My guest today is Anetta Weber, European Union's Special Representative for the Horn of Africa, who is engaged in mediation efforts in Sudan and Ethiopia and beyond. Aneta, welcome to the Mediator studio.
0: Hello Adam, thank you for having me.
1: So, you're a slightly atypical EU Special Representative, if I may say, because people are appointed to these positions and of course they make a great effort to understand the context in which they're working, but they don't always come with the vast wealth of experience that you do, because the horn is not new to you, is it?
0: No, it's absolutely not new to me. I started working on 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 the horn writing a a dissertation in 89 about Sudan. And then I worked on, you know, my PhD in South Sudan, Eritrea. Since then, basically the horn is very close to me. I lived in in, in Ethiopia and now I'm living in Nairobi. So yes, I come with a lot of <laughs> baggage let's
1: say. (laughs) Give us a sense of some of those early experiences that you had on the ground things you saw people you, you talked to which gave you a feel for the conflicts in the region but also I assume made good contacts that were helpful later on.
0: I think my formative years were definitely in the 90s in in South Sudan Eritrea. I did my PhD on on female combatants and the link between female combatants their recognition and female representation in in peace negotiations so who is really sitting at the table, what kind of experience is reflected if you, if you go for mediation, if you go for talks, if you go for, for negotiation, and um, who is not there. It was hugely interesting in building networks in, in, in South Sudan and to talk to female combatants, but of course also to, to the leaders uh, in both countries.
1: What do you think they made of you when they first sort of came across you, as sort of young, enthusiastic researcher just trying to understand what was going on?
0: I think it was hugely confusing. I do remember <laughs> I was in one of the camps in South Sudan, and uh, some of the combatants, some of the fighters said, are you a Lebanese trainer? Are you, are you coming here for, for military training? It's like, no, actually, I've never <laughs> had a gun in my hands. And they were no disappointed, clue. I guess, right? <laughs> quite disappointed. Also, my, you know, my Arabic back then was appalling, uh, and surely not Lebanese Arabic. So I went to, to South Sudan. I got out of the plane. The first woman looked at me and she's like, do you have a child? I was like, no. And she's like, why are you coming here? I was like, what do you mean? I'm doing research. She's like, this is really outrageous. You're leaving your home and you don't leave a child behind for your family and you just come here to be killed with us this is really ridiculous. I want you to go home, leave a child there. It's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not even planning to have children. It's like, we cannot work with you. People like you, you ha- they, have no, they have no concept of responsibility. So I knew, okay, that's a, that's a challenging place. I better stay here. So, so yeah, and I stayed. <laughs>
1: Are there experiences that you had, particular individuals who you felt shaped you, who taught you something the lessons you're carrying with you now
0: yes i think many south Sudanese women did i don't want to name names now um, sure. but i think it's you know in terms of the 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 gravity and the experience of of the cruel lives and and the brutality of this war but also with the with an understanding that you have to start from yourself but you have to always make it a communal experience you cannot just bring peace by yourself, you have to bring it by getting the community to to engage, and I think that was um, very specific and very peculiar to to South Sudan. I, I didn't have this experience in, mm. in, in Ethiopia, let's say, or or in Darfur, and I think that was uh, that was quite again shaping. And I think, of course, you always meet mediators who who, who do great work, but to me, it's much more the the national mediators. It's the Sudanese who bring people together. It's the Ethiopians trying to talk to each other. Yeah. It's um,
1: And if, I don't know, maybe if we can keep them anonymous to, to protect them a little bit, but is there someone from that, uh, yeah, the national side, whether it be in Ethiopia or Sudan, who you feel like that person is an inspiration? In?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, specifically on Sudan, these and these people are still around. These people are still doing this work. So I know them when they were in their 30s and they now, you know, in their 50s, 60s and they, it doesn't matter what kind of job they have as a day job, they continue being these basically full-time mediators. They invest all of their social time in trying to get people together even if they, if they're not keen on the political position of people but really having these social skills of unifying people to, to a specific purpose and I think that is really hugely appreciative. Um, I'm very appreciative of of this experience, especially in Sudan and South Sudan. Um,
1: of course, you've had a huge experience in the region, but still as an outsider. so how yes. how do you think you fit in?
0: I think we can only do as much as supporting what is already there. That's really my lesson. The wealth of the mediation is already in the countries. People are already talking to each other. That is what I think we need to support. I think it's quite rare where we can really make a change or a difference only as outsiders because you can only go so far and you can carry a process, I think, to a certain point, but really to have it owned makes all the difference. So that to me continues to be the case that I I always try to work very, very closely with national mediators or with local mediators Mm. rather than just coming in as, as part of an outside facilitation and then when you think
1: about how you relate to those with a formal mediation mandate and i'm thinking in the ethiopian case of the african union and the role that former nigerian president obasanjo plays in the process what do you see the role of the eu is vis-a-vis those efforts
0: for the eu we i mean we are fully supporting the the African Union efforts in in Sudan and in, in in Ethiopia, but also feeding in from my discussions because of course I'm still talking to both sides in Ethiopia to all sides in Ethiopia, feed in what I hear from from the different sides, what I sense where there could be an opening is the conflict ripe uh, or is, there, is are the two sides ripe to to basically sit down and feed that into a process. I'm trying to be in the countries at least every six weeks. Um, so I'm traveling to to Ethiopia quite a lot, being there, talking to as many people and having regular discussions, not just with Prime Minister Abiy and, and uh, Deputy Prime Minister who is now leading the negotiations, but also with the other side. And I think that gives not just the, the feeling of where people are, but of course also an understanding of what can be maybe a point of engagement for for the mediation.
1: I was hoping you could give our listeners a sense of the incredible complexity of the situation in Ethiopia. And just as a facilitator, how you think about structuring negotiations when it it is very much a multi-party situation.
0: Yes, it's very much a multi-party situation. I think what we should not forget is, Ethiopia, of course, being one of the eldest states on the continent. We do have basically a transition from a state formation into a new negotiation of how how the state should look like and who should be involved. And I think this is where we have ethnic mobilization on all different sites. Um, we have the old government that is now in Tigray fighting, or was fighting the uh, the government in, in Addis. We have the largest ethnic group, uh, the Oromos, feeling second-class citizens for a very long time and now negotiating their their place in power. We have the old political elite, the Amhara group, that now feels not fully trustful for if a a peace agreement between TPLF and and the government can be established, where is their space in the new Ethiopia? And of course that goes for, for many other groups as well. So I think this is, to me, very clear that we need to look at a sequence in negotiations. It's, it's important to stop the war, to get humanitarian access there, to have a, the ability for people to actually be able to, to, to look into negotiations, not just in, into survival. But I think then it's also important to bring the various groups to political discussions, to political settlements, because otherwise the disintegration that could happen in Ethiopia if, if it's not taken serious this would have ripple-on effects in, in the whole region, and including in a region that, that connects to the Red Sea, which is hugely important for, for, the, for the Europeans, a strategic nexus between the Gulf and, and the Horn of Africa, a strategic nexus for our trade. So Ethiopia is really important, and the disintegration of Ethiopia is something that needs to be avoided.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Sudan. Could you maybe give our listeners a sense of like your take on, on where things are now, but also trace it back a bit?
0: I think Sudan is really very important beyond the borders of Sudan. The revolution in 2018-19 in was sending shockwaves, but in a positive way, beyond, beyond the horn, because it was for the first time we had peaceful protests across the board of the society. We had grandmothers with small children, we had professionals, we had tea sellers. I mean, we had... Uh, cross-cutting societal protest, mm. it still gives me goosebumps because it felt like so energized and so possible. People started to talk about their future, not about tomorrow, but about after 30 years of a very authoritarian regime, how do you bring about democracy? Who needs to be shaping this future? Who should be there? Who should rule? You talk to people day and night about what this democracy could look like. Do they need democracy? What kind of democracy are we talking about? Is it a Western-style thing? To me, it was. It felt like the 60s in Europe, where basically you would just discuss day and night about politics with everyone. I think That was really the variety and the the diversity that we still see. There is no consensus about how the future of Sudan should look like. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And I think we should appreciate that many people have many different ideas about this future. But they all agree that the future cannot be like the past. And I think that is hugely positive. I think what we now, of course, see, we have a revolution that was not successful to the end and then we had a coup because the military felt that it's becoming too much. They couldn't deal with the diversity of thoughts of, of that future. And we, what we see right now, we don't have a coup that is concluded and we don't have a revolution. Because people do not agree that the stability the military is talking about is a stability they, they see as their stability. And the military doesn't agree that the diversity, the civilians see, could lead the country into the next round. And it's not just a power struggle. It really is a huge place of contestation of, of future ideas how Sudan should be shaped. And I think our role should be to provide that space, to provide the guarantees for this space to be existing, for this space to be a safe space for people to actually exchange about political future.
1: When you have coup leaders that see that diversity of opinion as a threat to stability. Do you think it's in the power of EU special representatives, others in the diplomatic community, to reassure them?
0: I think the reassurance is that there is no push for abandoning the military or getting rid of uh, state structures. The military is part of uh, a state, a functioning state, but there should also be reassurance for others to, to voice their concerns, and not just their concerns, but also their political aspirations, their political future ideas. And so that this space shouldn't be controlled by one side, but it should come to a transition where, where the majority of people feel like they have a say in, in, in shaping and creating their future. And of course, from a EU perspective, this is becoming a bit more urgent because of the economic situation of Sudan, now, of course, triggered by by the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine and the food crisis that we see looming. So we need a certain stability where we have the, the understanding that this is a representation of the, the people of Sudan, of their, of their political aspirations, for us to re-engage also economically. But it doesn't mean that we should put pressure for people to now go to the elections tomorrow so so we can we can re-engage uh, economically. So I think finding the right space between that economic urgency and the time people need to get back into to the transition is maybe the balancing act uh, we're looking at.
1: It's clear from your career that you're deeply invested in the region. You know, it's where you've spent almost all your professional life. So it's something that I can see that you, you take that responsibility enormously seriously. But I'm also curious about those lighter moments that allow you to sustain that work when th- situations can be really very difficult.
0: I think this is why Sudan is so uh, special to me because it's exactly this. Sitting down with people that have been fighting each other during the day and they, they're sitting down in the evening and share a drink or share a cigarette and discuss basically how it could be different. It can drive you crazy. Because it's like it's so wrong. Um, but it's of course also helping. It's helping because you can, you can engage in these talks and you can still believe that this could it could leave a bit of, you know of that sanity that is necessary to get out of the dark moments. But I also have to say, I don't think um, getting cynical is helping. Like it's a new generation coming up uh, the, in, in Sudan, the protesters. These are young people. I know their parents. Hmm. These are young people and they come with a huge interest in, in looking at something or they see something in Sudan that maybe their parents and myself will not see because we've been through the loops of things that are hard to overcome. But having these young people, having a vision, how they want to see that future, I mean, that to me is like, <laughs> I mean, if that's possible, what shouldn't be possible?
1: Thank you for being my guest in the Mediator studio, Annette. Thank you, Adam that's it for this edition of the mediator studio to get more episodes as they come out please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts you can also drop me a message on twitter at adam talks The mediator studio is an oslo forum podcast brought to you by the center for humanitarian dialogue and the norwegian ministry of foreign affairs our managing editor is christina Buchhold, the series editor is evie krasner and the producer is chris Gunnis. big thanks also to the production teams in geneva and oslo I hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.